You can turn to Luke 16 if you want. That's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, we're going to look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. But before we do that, if you look at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus opens the chapter telling a different parable. Uh, he tells the par- a parable about a, a steward, a manager uh, of, a, of a very wealthy man, owns a lot of land, got a lot of resources, uh, and, and this steward finds out, he hears through the grapevine that he is about to be fired. I'm not going to go into the details, Pastor Joel's going to preach on it in a couple weeks. Uh, by the way, you can keep track and let him know how long it takes us to get through it this morning, just in case he's curious. But uh, he's got, So he's got a steward for a rich man, uh, he finds out through the grapevine he's getting fired, and at first he does what any of us would do, he probably panics a little bit and thinks, oh man, you know, what am I going to do? I'm about to become unemployed. Well, then it occurs to him, I'm not unemployed yet. And while I'm still in this position, I have quite a bit of power, quite a bit of authority, and I have access to some vast resources that I'm not going to have access to in a little bit of time. And so he decides to use what time he has left to prepare the ground to make some friends for when he is going to be unemployed. And so when a guy shows up and he, and he finds out uh, this guy owes his master 800 barrels of oil, uh, he says to this guy, look, I've always liked you, always just thought you were a great guy. Uh, you and I, I feel like, have always had some good rapport. He said, you know what, between friends, between you and I, let's just, let's make that 800, 400, call it even. The guy says, that'd be great, you'll get no argument from me. Another guy shows up later, and he checks and says, ah, see here, you owe a 1,000 bushels of wheat. He goes, man, a 1,000 feels like a lot. He says, you know what, we've always been friends. Haven't we been good friends? Yeah, we've had a great relationship. I've really enjoyed working with you. I don't see any reason why we couldn't take that 1,000 and and make it 500, just between friends, call it even. And the guy says, well, yeah, that'd be great. Let's call it 500. And so it goes. Well, eventually, the master shows up. He hears what his steward has been doing. And he chuckles to himself a little bit. And he says, uh, now you're still going to be fired. But I have to say, you are one clever man. Let's hope these new friends of yours are as generous to you in your unemployment as you were to them with my money. Now, we often struggle with this parable, I think, because we get distracted, we get pulled in directions the parable doesn't intend for us to go, start worrying about whether or not Jesus is advocating unethical behavior here. He's not. I understand Jesus to be making a relatively simple point via a comparison. Jesus compares our situation on this earth with the situation of the steward about to get fired. Like the steward, who knows that he is for sure going to be fired in the near future, we know, ultimately, that our time on this earth is limited. One day, we will all die. Also like the steward, we have access right now, while we are here, to temporary resources, wealth and possessions, that we will not take with us when we go. When the steward is fired, and he will be, he knows he will no longer have access to his master's resources. And similarly, we know that when we die, we are going to lose all the money, all the possessions we pile up here. And that being the case, Jesus suggests that since we are in a similar situation, we would be wise to do as the steward does. That is, we should use our temporary wealth and resources 
to secure friends who will be with us for eternity. Now, however you assess the difficulty of living according to that piece of wisdom, the actual point, it seems to me, is unassailable, at least from inside the Christian faith. We all know, do we not, that when we die, we, we can't take any of our stuff with us? I mean, we know that's true, right? We also know that all those who give their allegiance to Jesus Christ in this life will be with us for eternity. We know that to be true. And given those two facts, uh, Jesus' suggestion that we ought to use our temporary possessions to gain friends for eternity seems to me not just wise, but obvious. And yet... If you look in Luke 16, when Jesus finishes telling this parable, you'll find that the Pharisees have been eavesdropping. At the beginning of Luke 16, Jesus is teaching his disciples, he's talking to them, but the Pharisees are loitering, they're hanging around, they're listening in on what Jesus has to say. And when they heard this parable, they were unimpressed. In fact, Luke tells us, uh, if you look, that the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. Sneering. They mocked the parable and its lesson. They responded to Jesus' wisdom with contempt. And Luke tells us why. Because they loved money. They loved it. We aren't told exactly what they said, but I think you can imagine what they might have said to each other as they sneered at Jesus. You can imagine them saying, well, of course, this is exactly the kind of thing that a broke, itinerant preacher would say. He can hardly claim, after all, uh, that wealth is proof of God's favor and blessing when he himself has none. Now, I've provided this bonus parable coverage this morning because I think it sets the stage importantly and in an important way for the parable that we're going to discuss of the rich man and Lazarus. It gives us important context. If you make your way through Luke 16, you'd see that at the beginning, as I said, Jesus is addressing his disciples. He tells that first parable to them. But when he's done and the Pharisees are sneering, Jesus notices. He hears what they're saying and he responds in verse 15. He then goes on to tell the parable we're going to look at today in verse 19. And in the parable we're going to look at today, he is either telling directly to the Pharisees, which just, that's what I think he's doing. I think that's the more likely one, is he is telling this parable directly to the Pharisees as a result of their sneering. Or at the very least, he's telling it to his disciples because of the way the Pharisees responded to the previous parable. The Pharisees have dismissed, they've dismissed Jesus' claim that people are of greater worth than wealth. And this parable is Jesus' response. Look with me now, if you would, at verses 19 through 31. Jesus says this. He says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived every day in luxury. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, 
where the rich man was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me. Send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those that want to go from here to you who cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He responded, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let your brothers listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, then they will repent. But Abraham replied, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, this is a unique parable in a couple of ways. Uh, First, It is the only parable of Jesus that we have that has named characters, Abraham and, of course, Lazarus. Further, unlike most of Jesus' other parables, this parable is not making a comparison or an analogy. Uh, You may have noticed the lack of the typical formula at the beginning. Jesus often begins the parables with the kingdom of heaven is like, but we don't have that here. Now, Bizarrely, this has led some, mostly in academic circles, to claim that this is not a parable, it's really something else, uh, an example story. I've always found that a little bit ludicrous, as though like Jesus should have anticipated how we were going to define the category of parable, and he should have restrained himself to operate within those limits. Uh, that's crazy. Th- this is a parable in every way that really matters. It is a memorable short story that teaches and calls to action. It is a story with intent. Uh, This particular one is a two-stage narrative parable. All that means is it's a story, it's a narrative. It has two stages, right? Stage one is life on earth, life before death. And then stage two of the parable, life after death. Uh, It is a two-stage parable that serves as a warning. Not a comparison, not an example, a warning. Specifically, it is a warning to those who disregarded Jesus' previous parable on the relative importance of money and people. It is a warning to the wealthy to not neglect the poor. It is a warning to the wealthy to not neglect the poor. Now let's unpack it a bit. Uh, This parable works. uh, It serves as a rebuttal to the Pharisees by making two big points. Uh, First, With this story, Jesus makes the claim that what we do with our time and resources in this life matters to God. What we do here on earth matters to God. Jesus makes this point uh, through the use of the two stages. This is where the two-stage structure comes into play. Uh, In stage one, we are told, the rich man was dressed in purple and linen and he lived in luxury every day. 
Now we get this little detail about the purple, because purple, as you may know, was an extremely expensive dye in the ancient world. It was so expensive that it was known as the color of royalty. The idea was uh, you either had to be royalty or as wealthy as royalty to afford purple garments. And this guy, we are told, wears them every day. Jesus, I think, is letting us know that this is a man who enjoyed the best of everything. His life was really really good. Lazarus, by contrast, in stage one, is his opposite. Lazarus was a beggar, covered in sores. He was often hungry, and he suffered physically. His life was really, really hard. That's stage one. Life is really good for the rich man, really hard for Lazarus. In stage two, we have a, a dramatic reversal of circumstances. Lazarus, when he dies, we are told, is personally escorted by angels directly to the side of Abraham. Uh, that is, he is taken personally by angels to a place that any Jew would have recognized to be a place of the greatest honor and reward, the side of Abraham. In other words... His afterlife is really, really good. The rich man, by contrast, dies and finds himself unceremoniously in Hades. Needless to say, he receives no escort. The rich man finds himself in torment, desperate for the relief that even a single drop of water might bring. His afterlife is really, really bad. That's stage two. Now, the all-important question when we have these two stages, which is never made quite explicit, is why does it turn out the way it does? Why does stage two turn out this way? Why does the rich man, specifically, end up in Hades, in torment? Now, when we answer this, it's important to answer, try and find the answer, just from within the parable. What can we surmise from what we're told in the parable? Well, the only thing we can really come up with from within the parable, is that every day, Lazarus sat in misery by the gate of this rich man. And every day, he did nothing to help. He gave no money. He offered no treatment for his sores. Never provided any water or any food so that Lazarus could only long for the scraps that fell from his table. Now, we can maybe argue over the specifics here, but the point of the parable structure, which is very clear, is that the rich man is in Hades in stage two because of the way he lived his life in stage one. When I was in high school, one of my favorite teachers was Mrs. Gerbricht. Uh, I had her turned out for biology and also for chemistry. Uh, but when I had her for biology, I was warned by all sorts of people that she was a really hard teacher, that Tons of people got bad grades in her class, and nobody really liked her. Well, I did like her, uh, and it, it turned out that the reason she had this reputation uh, was, I would say in hindsight, because she was really good and took seriously her job of preparing us for college. So what would happen is you'd get to her class, the bell would ring, and she would start teaching. And as far as she was concerned, you could listen or not listen. You could pay attention, not pay attention. You could sit there and play games on your calculator. That's how we used to roll kids. We'd 
put games on our TI-83 Plus and play Mario on there. And she wouldn't stop you. She wouldn't say anything. She wouldn't take your calculator away. She said all the time, I'm not your mom. You're not a child. If you want to listen, listen. If you don't want to listen, it's fine by me. I'm not the one taking the test. You are. And so she would just start talking. Now, at the beginning, we had a lot of noisy beginnings to class because people didn't realize what was going on. But over time, a bunch of us found we really liked that. Uh, I liked being treated like a grown-up because I thought I was a grown-up. I liked being given responsibility for my grades, and lots of us did. Uh, we learned to take good notes, even without an outline. It was great preparation. Uh, and, and we, you won't be surprised to hear, did fine in her class. Other people, it turned out, were actually really happy with this, this arrangement too. They took advantage of the fact that she didn't care if they sat there and talked to their neighbors throughout the whole class, and often they would. They didn't care if they played games on their calculator the whole class, and so often they would. Uh, I had a friend, a kind of a casual friend, who fell into this camp. He was a good student, but he took advantage of the fact that he just didn't have to pay attention. It was like a period break for him, period off. But then he got his grade card for the first grading period, and this guy who got good grades, was overall a pretty good student, got a D. And he panicked, he freaked out. And he went to Mrs. Gerbrecht and he said, he said I, I, I can't have this grade. I, I'm a good student. My, my parents are going to kill me. I can't have a D. And she said, well, of course you can have a D. Uh, you haven't paid attention the whole grading period. You didn't take notes. You didn't prepare for the tests. And you got bad grades on all the tests. So not only can you have a D, you do have a D. And he said, well, but I, you have to let me do something. You have, I have to be able to change this. I, this is going to tank my grade point average. My parents are going to be so upset. And she said, if you're worried about your grade, the time to do something was during the last grading period. Now it's too late. I don't know about you, but when I read parables like this, I get a little nervous, right? I get a little anxious. I immediately start thinking, man, have I been generous to those around me in need, or have I been selfish and stingy? I feel anxiety there that I want to resolve, and the temptation is to try to quash that right away, to assure ourselves, right, no, no, we're okay, we'll be fine. I'd encourage you this, this morning, if you can, to not do that, and just sit with it for a moment, because I think that's part of Jesus' intent here. This parable is meant to be a warning, there's no way around that. So we should let it be a warning to us, especially if we need a warning. Jesus insists, and by the way, not just in this parable, he insists that what we do and don't do with our time and our money and our lives in this world matters to God. He insists that our actions here have consequences. Now that is a warning, and we do need to hear it as one. But I would remind us also that there's a flip side to that, which is that this is, if we heed the warning, a life-affirming and purpose-giving statement. Jesus, when he says this, gives meaning to what we do here and now in this world. It gives us purpose. It tells us that God cares about how we live. And that could be a very good thing as well. Now, it's worth asking, so I will. 
Can we, by what we do or don't do, nullify the work of the cross? Of course not. Can we, by what we do or don't do, thwart God's purposes or his kingdom? No. But, do I think that we are all gonna one day get to glory and find out that God, after all, doesn't care at all how we live our lives here? I wouldn't bet on it. And Jesus wouldn't bet on it either. That's the first big point that Jesus makes as a rebuttal in this parable. That, that what we do here, how we live our lives and spend our resources matters to God. The second big point which makes this parable work is the claim that all people, including perhaps especially the poor and the powerless, matter to God. Everyone matters to God. Jesus drives this point home through the use of a few special details, one of which we, also, we already mentioned, which is that he names Lazarus. In all the parables that Jesus tells, aside from Abraham also in this parable, Lazarus is the only character that Jesus gives a name. Now, why is that important? Well, obviously, in Jesus' world, just as in our world, the rich man would have been considered to be the more important person. He's the person whose name we would all be more likely to remember. And yet it's Lazarus that Jesus names, and not the rich man. Note also that we are told at his death that Lazarus is given a personal escort of angels directly from death to Abraham's side, to this, to this place of highest honor and greatest reward. Now, don't read too much into that. Uh, this is not ultimately about how our afterlife arrangements work. The point, I think, of giving us these details is simply to tell us that God loves and highly values Lazarus. God has judged Lazarus to be worthy of great honor and affection. Consider how that must have struck Jesus' audience, especially the Pharisees who Luke tells us loved money. Lazarus is a man that would have been near the bottom of anyone's ladder of social importance and power. And why? Because he had no money, he had no home, apparently he has no family, he lived every day in rags. But Jesus' parable reminds us that our value and importance in God's eyes has nothing to do with our wealth, nothing to do with our clothing or our social station. Lazarus would have been judged unimportant by all of those metrics, and yet it is Lazarus who is personally escorted by angels to the place of highest honor. God places great value on all people, perhaps especially those that our society values least. And if Lazarus and those like him matter to God, they should matter to us. If Lazarus and those like him matter to our Heavenly Father, they should matter to us. Or let me put it a different way. How can we call ourselves the people of God? How can we call ourselves children of our Heavenly Father if we care nothing for the people that God loves deeply? 
Uh, I'm close to having, I'm on the verge of having uh, teenagers in my household, and uh, as time has gone on as a parent, I've learned uh, some things about myself. I've learned that while I'm pretty good at letting insults and the like directed at me go, I'm not great, I'm pretty good, I got room for growth, but you know, if someone slights me or disrespects me, insults me, I'm usually pretty good at letting that go, just letting it roll off and moving on with life. But what I've learned is that if people are cruel to my children, if they insult them and are mean to them, I'm not so good at letting that go. I need a lot of time and a lot of prayer and like the direct intervention of the Holy Spirit to get over that. I'm sure all of you can relate with some people in your own life. But the flip side is also true. If you want to have me as a friend for life, If you want my favor, if you want my loyalty until the very bitter end, the shortest, most direct route to that outcome is to be kind, to show compassion to the people that I love. If you are kind or compassionate to my wife and to my kids, especially when they are in need, you got a friend for life. You got someone that will have your back when you need it. You'll have my favor and my loyalty. Jesus, I think, is making the same point here. If you want God's favor, if you want honor in his eyes, if you want to be truly a child of your heavenly father, then show love to those your heavenly father loves, especially the ones who are in need. Care tangibly for the people who matter to God. The rich man in the story has been blessed with great resources. But he ignores Lazarus, who sits before his house each day in great need. He either believes that God doesn't really care what he does with his resources and his life, or he thinks that God doesn't really care about Lazarus. Jesus tells us in this story that he is completely wrong on both counts. Lazarus and all those like him matter dearly to God. And how the rich man lives his life, how he chooses, how we all choose to live our lives and use our resources matters to God too. So what this parable teaches us is that what we do here, how we live our lives, matters deeply to our Heavenly Father. It teaches us also, it reminds us that all people are created in God's image and matter deeply to him. But there is a third, final, interesting claim that Jesus makes as a sort of wrap-up to this parable. And that is that whatever else we might say, we cannot claim that we did not know those first two facts. If you think that you can get to the the end, if you can stand before God when you're going to give account of your life, and and if your plan is that you're going to stand before God and you're going to say, well, God, I had no idea. I just, I had no clue that you were at all interested in how I lived my life and used the resources you'd given to me. Or that you're going to say, God, I, I just didn't know that you cared about all these people. If I had known, I would have done things differently. Jesus says, if that's your plan, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. Look back at verses 27 through 31, the final four verses here you find an interesting exchange between Abraham and the rich man. The rich man 
asks Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers about what awaits them if they do not repent. The implication here is that the rich man is somewhat surprised to find himself in Hades, that he expected either to be somewhere else or maybe nowhere after death. We don't know what his uh, views were. And he implies that if he had only known, if someone had just told him, he would have lived very differently. If he had just known how much God loved and valued Lazarus, he would have done something to help. And he thinks, surely, if, if God were to raise Lazarus from the dead and send him back to tell his brothers, they will change their ways before it's too late. But Abraham rejects this out of hand. He tells the rich man that his brothers, like the rich man himself, have Moses and all the prophets to listen to. Let your brothers listen to them, Abraham says. But the rich man persists. He says, no, no, I know, but surely if a man returned from the dead, he would be much more likely to get them to repent. He would make a bigger impression. And let me pause for a second to say, you know, it occurred to me while I was reading this this week, I fall into this thinking and I'm going to go out on a limb and suspect that many of us fall into this thinking as well. Right, where we, we say to God, look, God, if, if you would just do something miraculous to make your will clear to me, if you could just see to doing something supernatural to reveal your will, then I would be obedient, right? Then I would follow courageously in what you've called me to do. But notice that Abraham rejects this as well. Look at verse 31. He says to the rich man, if they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I can't resist here. Given what Jesus knows about his mission and ministry, there's maybe a little foreshadowing going on here. Even if someone rises from the dead, they won't be convinced. The problem, in other words, is not a lack of knowledge claims of ignorance will be rejected. They all knew or should have known. They had a lifetime of access to all that God has said through Moses and the prophets. And God, at least, is under the impression that he has made himself clear. What we do with our lives and our resources matters to him. And all people, regardless of station in life, matter to him also. Moses makes that clear. The prophets make that clear. And now, for us, we have to add, Jesus makes that clear too. However we plan to respond to this warning, Jesus says, the one thing we cannot do is claim that God never warned us. So what should we do? This parable is a warning to the wealthy, to those who have been blessed with many good things, to not neglect the poor. Well, this parable, like many of the others, is light on specific behavioral suggestions, though I would note here, because, you know, I feel like I have to, Moses and the prophets aren't light on specific behavioral suggestions. If that's what you're looking for, you'll find plenty there. But I want to suggest a slightly different approach this morning. Look with me back at Luke 16, verse 15. 
Uh, this is the verse right after we're told that the Pharisees were sneering at Jesus' previous parable, and Jesus catches it. He sees what they're doing, he hears what they're saying, and he turns to the Pharisees and he says this. He says, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. As I say, sometimes I worry that when we hear parables like this, our temptation is to jump right away to some just specific behavioral thing, uh, right? To ease our conscience and our anxiety. Uh, we'll give 10 bucks to the guy sitting by the, the exit ramp. Uh, just do something to make ourselves feel better, to convince ourselves we have nothing really to be, warned or to be worried about here. And don't get me wrong, Jesus is calling us to action with this parable. Uh, but I think we also need to keep in mind that what Jesus, what God is ultimately concerned about is our heart. It's our heart. What I want to suggest this morning is this. As by way of an application, if we can learn to see and care for the people that God places in our lives the way that God sees and cares for those people, I think the rest will take care of itself. Do you notice in this parable that this rich man who, whose life in stage one appears to be marked by kind of self-absorption, right? Selfishness. It's like he doesn't even see Lazarus. Lazarus just becomes part of the landscape. And yet here he is in stage two suffering terrible torment and he finds time, he finds it within himself to have compassion on his brothers. Isn't that interesting? But of course, the explanation for that is simple, isn't it? Where he didn't care for Lazarus, he does care for his brothers. And that's why he wants to help them. I think if we ask God to help us see and care for others the way he does, the rest, the practical things, will take care of themselves. We will know what to do. Uh, so I want to suggest today uh, that we close and I'm going to ask you right now, if you would, just to bow your heads. I'd like to pray over us that God would help us grow in two areas. First, Heavenly Father, we come before you and ask that you would help us to see the people around us as you see them. Open our eyes to the people that you have placed in our paths and those with needs that we can address. Second, Father, I pray that you would enlarge our hearts. Help us to care for those around us as you care for them. Give us your love and your compassion for those that you have placed in our orbit. Help us, Father, to see them and to care for them as you see and care for them. Amen. Now listen, I know these are not the kinds of things that we can just check off at the end of the day or end of the week, but I want to invite you and encourage you to make this a prayer, a part of your spiritual life and growth, uh, that God would continue to help all of us as we go through life to see people and to respond to them, to care for them as he does. I think if we can pray that prayer sincerely and keep praying it, that God will answer it. And that we will grow to see and care for people more as our Heavenly Father does. And I think we will find that, that once we see them and care for them as God does, we will know what to do. 
when we encounter people who are in need. 